Steady, you demon of the speed! <laughs> Beware! Observe, the wallpaper's already coming away from Bluebottle's hat! Uh, could you slow down just a bit here? I want to take that photograph of the Earth. Oh, here. I, I just saw the Earth in the clouds. Did it look round? Yeah, but I don't think it's for me. <laughs> Goonpod, the podcast in which myself, Tyler Adams, and a guest talk about anything to do with the Goon Show or anything that features Sellers, Milligan, Seacom, or Benteen. And uh, my guest is the novelist, writer, um, multi-talented individual, uh, more, more on that shortly, uh, Eddie Robson. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Eddie Robson, welcome to Goonpod. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Uh, now, let me just um, pop on my pince-nez and <laughs> peruse your CV, because um, you've got a very extensive CV here. Uh, yeah. You, you've pretty much, it's fair to say, you've pretty much worked, I mean, you're, a, you're ostensibly, you, you are a, a writer and a novelist, yeah. um, and you've worked in most medium, I guess, apart from film, Eddie? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, um, and and your work often t- tends to lean towards sci-fi and, and fantastical, and you've you've written novels such as Tomorrow Never Knows, yeah, um, and Hearts of Oak, and you've got a new one coming out, haven't you? Yes, called Drunk on All Your Strange New Words, which is uh, out. Uh, well, as we're speaking, it is due out at the end of uh, end of June. Oh well, literally in two weeks then. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Okay. Well, um, you can talk about that a little bit more, you know, at the end of the show. Um, yeah, yeah, great. Because we always do a little plug thing there. Yeah. Um, and you've also you've also got involved doing a lot of sort of Doctor Who content, so radio plays and comic yes. adaptations and short stories and things like that. Yeah. 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 Great deal. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's uh, it's kind of where I got my break into script writing was uh, was doing Doctor Who stuff. Okay. Okay. And you work not so much now, but you used to do quite a bit with Big Finish. Yeah, I, I do. I still pop in and do the odd one uh, when they ask me. But I did. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I was. There was a point when I was writing. You know, I seem to be writing about four or five a year. The peak of it for them, uh, which was great. But I do. Um, I kind of understand if they want to move on to uh, to other writers because um, uh, people do get hooed out, as they used to say. John Nathan Turner, producer of Doctor Who in the eighties, used to say that writers and directors would get hooed out and uh yeah i did i, I don't want that to happen so um I, but yeah if any if, if they ever come back to me and say hey do you fancy doing this and i'll go oh yeah yeah it's it's uh, it's never a chore there seems to be with this podcast that's been going for a year now in almost every episode of this podcast there's at least one reference to doctor who <laughs> and there's at least one reference to the beatles uh yes yeah <laughs> um uh, yeah, well, it, it sort of doesn't surprise me. I don't. I think it's just because those, because um, yeah, Doctor Who and the Beatles both kind of emerged in the early sixties, um, very much into that kind of world that had been 
uh, you know, th that British cultural landscape that had been very influenced by the Goon Show. So I think you uh, the, the links are often there, definitely. Totally. I'm, I'm familiar with you mainly for the um, Radio 4 comedy series, Welcome to Our Village, Please Invade Carefully, which was very popular. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's what was that two three series something like that is it no we got two series no say so, you know it was sort of i mean you say it was very popular i mean it does it had a it had a following but unfortunately mm. we uh we didn't get enough enough following for it to uh to get a third series we did we pitched a third series in fact i i remember that um you know when we were pitching it i thought uh, i thought it was unlikely we get a pilot and we got a pilot and then when we got the pilot i thought oh it's unlikely we'll get a series and we got a series and then I was like, oh, it's unlikely we'll get a second series, and we did get a second series. And then by the end of the second series, I was quietly confident that we'd get a third series, and that was obviously the, the kiss of death on it. Yeah. I, should, <laughs> I should never have believed that we would have get that second, that third series. Yeah. You've written a lot for TV. Um, mm -hmm. Sarah, my daughter was absolutely obsessed by Sarah and Duck mm. at one point. You've written for that. You've written for kids' TV quite a bit. Yeah, that that often comes up. Yeah, Sarah and Duck is. I mean, that was that was a real thing. That was when my uh, my own youngest was about four, three yeah. or four, and I was just I was working a lot with the TV on out of necessity with CBBS on, um, and I just got to the point where I was like, I just I know this channel inside out now. I know <laughs> I know every show on the channel, uh, and I, I I'd always been interested in writing for kids TV anyway, but I thought I should really you know now is the time to kind of strike and try and do it because I'll never know. A channel in this much detail again so i just made a hit list of like you know what what were my actual favorite shows you know what were the ones that i actually enjoyed watching with him and fair and duck was top of the list and that was the one that came off so that was nice i do i do think it's the one where you know when i'm in my dotage and i mentioned to people that i was a writer and people, oh, what would you do if i say sarah and duck i think it will have the kind of <laughs> misty-eyed reverence one day that that we reserve for you know bagpuss and that sort of thing and 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 yeah, I say you've written novels. You've also written a book about the Cohen brothers. Yeah, things. that was actually one of my first kind of big professional things. Was that I? Uh, yeah, I. In fact, I um I was doing a, an MA in creative writing at the time, and I pitched it before I started the MA. This Cohen brothers book, and they said, "Oh no, thank you." And then they suddenly came back to me and said, oh, actually, maybe, but can you do it in three months? And I never did ask, OK, who let you down? <laughs> right. But I think that was that was certainly the subtext was, um, yeah, no, somebody else has not delivered their book. Mm, How mm. quickly can you write one? But that was that was a yeah, that was sort of a good thing to immerse myself in. For, what's, what's, uh, OK, what's the best Coen Brothers film? Oh, I it, for me, it's a toss up between Barton Fink. Mm. and oh i don't know i would i used to say the man who wasn't there i do really love that one but i don't know maybe the big lebowski I, mm. it's, it's, yeah it's to come back to i i would have I, at one point i would have said the big lebowski and then a couple of years ago i watched oh brother we're out there mm. and absolutely loved that yeah i remember that was one where i i think actually i i was maybe slightly disappointed by it the first time i saw it and just maybe i was expecting something a bit different um and that maybe caused my response a bit and then i watched it again for the book and i thought oh actually it's very good i don't know what i was making mm -hmm. fuss about it is, a, mm -hmm. it is a great film george uh george clooney is a revelation it was a revelation when i saw him in that he is um, he's, he's very uh, it's one of the nice things about clooney actually i think is that like he's sort of you might expect him to 
to be a bit more self-regarding than he is, but he's very, very willing to send himself up and to look ridiculous. And I think exactly. what I actually, I think I wrote in the book that what I love about his performance in No Brother Where Art Thou is that he his character is so vain, and it's like he's basically playing a guy who thinks he's George Clooney. You know, he kind of thinks he's a bit of a. <laughs> yes. a a celebrity yes. heartthrob just within his own little world. Um, and is, you know, I just love the way he's constantly, it's, it's that one when he um, he's woken in the middle of the night and the first thing he does is say, my hair! <laughs> he sort of thinks that like- That's right. Like and he's always saying, there. he's always saying variations on, oh boy, we're for it now. Or something yeah. like that, isn't he? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're in trouble now. Yeah. Um, okay. Why did they remake the Lady Killers? Why did they do oh, that? Oh, well, actually, do you know what? If, do you actually want to know why they remade The Lady? Yeah, go on. Because mm. I actually do know this. Um, mm. Okay, so what happened was, it was around the time they were trying to raise funding for a really expensive film they wanted to make called To the White Sea that would have starred Brad Pitt and would have been shot in Japan. And yeah. they needed to raise quite a lot of money for it. And so they were undertaking, uh, you know, odd jobs in, in Hollywood to try and, uh, to try and you know raise their stock a bit, raise their standing, and then Barry Sonnenfeld, who was their son, uh, their cinematographer on their first three films, and had then become a director, came to them and said, "I've just signed on to do this remake of The Lady Killers for Disney. Do you want to write the script?" And I think they kind of felt, "Well, that will be quite easy. Uh, it will be fun, and we'll be helping out a mate." So they kind of went in. They did this. They did the this the script for it, delivered it, and went, "Okay, fine." And then Barry Sonnenfeld left the project for, I'm not sure exactly why, I think, you know, creative differences type stuff. Yeah. And, um, and I could see the position that they'd left themselves in because they didn't own the script because it was a remake of something else. Um, and the script could have been given to anyone. And I think they suddenly had this fear that it might go to somebody else and this film would go out with their names on it mm. uh, that mm. would have been done yeah not the way they wanted it to be done so they and they happened to have a gap in their schedule so they went okay we'll take it on instead um and i think it sort of it, it felt like quite an odd decision if you just regard it as the next coen brothers film you think why have they done that they could do anything they wanted but it was a case of they'd done the script for money and then they kind of went oh hang on hang damage on. limitation kind of thing kind of yeah. yes yeah basically yeah. It was kind of they and and again again they were quite i think they were keen to kind of show that they could i think after they got a bit of a reputation uh undeserved after the hard sucker proxy for not being able to handle big budgets yeah well i mean with the, they're on a hiding to nothing trying to trying to remake such a almost perfect film I yeah, suppose. I know. Um, I know. I don't I mean I quite I quite like the remake of the Lady Killers. It's just it's one of those things where you think, but um, you know, it didn't need to be done, basically. <laughs> I think it's yeah. I think it's a perfectly fine film in its own right. It's um yeah, it's not it's not my least favourite of their films, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course the original Lady Killers included Peter Sellers in the cast. Mm. And um Peter Sellers, oh um he was also around <laughs> that time in the Goon Show, yes. which rather neatly brings us on to the topic of this podcast um yeah. so eddie what you're a similar age to me so mm -hmm. you, you weren't around obviously when it was going out originally so how did you how did you come to find the goon show yeah i think probably like a lot of people uh, my age i got it through my parents my parents had really loved it especially my mum my mum really loved the goon show when she was growing up um mm. And it was when, um, yeah, we did, we just, I think it was actually, it was um, a, uh, our uh, across the street neighbor who was a big uh, comedy fan, particularly a radio comedy fan, <clears throat> had a lot of the uh, tapes of the Goon Show. And so we used to borrow them 
and um I, actually, I do remember um, uh, with a, a friend who was also his, uh, whose dad was similarly a radio comedy fan. In fact, I used to go around to his house, and he had he had loads of, like his dad was a computer nut as well, and had like um, three gaming PCs set up in a room yeah. with this old reel-to-reel tape recorder that he'd had since the seventies, and he had like original recordings of Hitchhikers, and I'm sorry, I'll read that again. Oh, wow. cool. uh, which uh, which we used to sit and listen to. But uh, but yeah, when I was around at his house one night, we did we happened across uh, the party on a cable channel, mm. uh, which is a film that doesn't come up on TV as much these days <laughs> no. uh, for good reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but probably the first time I sat and watched one end to end, actually one of Sellers' films was probably Doctor Strangelove when I was at university, mm. um, and that's one of those ones that's a strange kind of crossover that like you hear about Stanley Kubrick and he's you know the the clockwork orange and shining and full metal jacket guy and then the sort of the incongruity of him working with uh, someone like peter sellers who i knew from you know his 50s comedy yeah. work yeah um but the fact that it was um it was fascinating that they not only worked together but that uh kubrick rated him so highly that he wanted him to play every part in the film that he you know that he was meant to he was meant to play a fourth part in the film wasn't he and sellers like didn't he feign injury or something yeah he wasn't he didn't think he could get the accent it was a texan accent that was required he he was a bit he just didn't feel confident so i think he he sprained his ankle Mm -hmm. if you know what i mean um (laughs) um i mean kubrick not known necessarily for for reusing actors and obviously he'd, he'd Use sellers twice. You sellers. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, mm. no, no, because there are there are very few. Yeah, there are very few actors he ever used twice. So it was, and it was, and I think there was. It, 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 he probably would have used him again if you know circumstances had, uh, had had gone correctly. But yeah, it's um, yeah, you don't. He's not. He's very rare among major directors. Actually, most have at least a few actors who you really firmly associate with them. But he, you know, the closest that you get for Kubrick is the sellers really for just two performances. Yeah, certainly, certainly in terms of lead actor stakes. Yeah. Uh, he, he did like using Leonard Rossiter. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Again, <laughs> again you know, another, uh, another slightly incongruous British comedy presence. So, so Eddie, obviously when, when you and I were in contact talking about you coming on the show, mm-hmm. you nominated... Uh, the episode, the Goon Show episode, Wings Over Dagenham. Calling B4. Calling B4. Hello? Control calling B4. Hello, Captain. <laughs> Is that you, B4? Yeah. Why didn't you answer me, B4? Because I didn't hear you, B4. <laughs> Listen, warning, do not land at Croydon Airport because it's not there yet. <laughs> right, then. Now, what is your exact position? I'm lying on my side <laughs> with my knees drawn up under my chin. <laughs> Why? I'm at home in bed. (laughs) So why this particular episode? Well, actually, I was really just looking at, um, because there were a few few of the ones that first came to mind, uh, your previous guests had already taken. So I was really just looking at, like, what what ones did I really remember well 
<clears throat> and uh, it was like I said, it was the ones that I remembered from those tapes. So I really just kind of I thought I went through those. Um, and when I suggested this one, I thought, oh, how well do I actually know that one? Um, because I, yeah, I hadn't thought about it for a good few years. And I listened back to it and I was like, gosh, is that, you know, not only do I, you know, it's a, do I, you know, once that my memory was jogged, I remembered it really well, but also there were like phrases from it that I thought, oh God, I even still say things like that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'd kind of forgotten where they even came from. And yeah, and I, once, once I, um, once I revisited it, it, it kind of, it does sum up a lot of the stuff that I, that, I don't know it sums up a lot of what sort of is the goon show to me a lot of the kind of radio tricks of it and the subject matter um is uh really encapsulated in this episode so you'd have probably heard it on because it was released as um goon show classics number six in yeah, that, that 1979 yeah yeah so it probably would have been um would that a bit would that have been on tape or record both both all yeah. oh, right okay yeah I mean, what, what else is on that volume Right. Well, here's the interesting thing. It it, okay. it, it was on one side, it was uh, Wings Over Dagenham. The other side, it was the Rent Collectors. Yes. Yes. The interesting thing is that both shows, Wings Over Dagenham and the Rent Collectors, were recorded on the same night. Oh, right. Um, and, the, and there's something in Wings Over Dagenham, which um, is made more explicit in the Rent Collectors, which we'll come to. Okay. okay. Actually, thinking about that, so did they? I, I don't know this, but did they generally record two in a night? No, no, no. That's that is because my impression was always that they it was very much done as they went along. They would like write one in the week, rehearse, record, and then done. But actually, when we've done, whenever I've done radio comedy, we always do two in a night because you can you can comfortably get an hour of material in the cam. You yeah. know, allowing for retakes and cut things down, and it's obviously much more economical with uh, hiring the venue. Well, what they actually they tried to avoid doing, you know, two shows on the same night because it could because it could affect the quality. You know, it's quite tiring, and, and yeah, and and um, in this in the eighth series, they often recorded two shows. You know, on a Sunday night, yeah, They'd record the show that was going to be part of the the eighth series proper and they were also recording um remakes of yes. some old series four shows which were yeah. going to be um going out or sold for uh, overseas sales overseas yeah. radio stations and and that's why the eighth series is generally considered to be a little bit patchy mm-hmm. and why the uh series four remade shows which come under the banner of vintage goons you know they are seen as being a bit patchy as yeah. well um but the re- no i mean w- w- the reason why it was recorded there were, there were two two different shows recorded the same night was because uh well it was they were both recorded 30th of december 1956 mm-hmm. okay uh which was a sunday i think the reason they did it was that sellers wanted a free sunday in early january to record a television show mm. yeah so so wings over dagenham so it's it's the 15th episode of series seven yeah. Um, it's written by Spike Milligan, Larry Stevens, produced by mm-hmm. Pat Dixon. And it was actually broadcast on the 10th of January, 1957. Yeah. And I mean, 10th of January, by the way, 1957 is quite a momentous day in British history. Um, do you know why that was? I do not. A certain Harold Macmillan became prime minister that day. Uh. Um, yeah, Britain had a new, new, pr- isn't that a lovely thought? Britain had a new prime minister. 
Uh, <laughs> they should do if that. only, if should, only. Should do that more often, shouldn't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so, uh, and and uh, also that night, um, so the 10th of January, 1957, this went out on the home service. Um, at the same time, Spike Milligan was appearing on the Petula Clark show on television. Oh, right. So, uh, Wigs Over Dagenham, uh, there is a, a, a synopsis for this, which um, was supplied by BBC Transcription Services. So I'll just quickly run through the synopsis just to um, set the scene. For the first time, the real story behind the invention of the aeroplane is told. The problems confronting the daring inventor of the fiendish, heavier-than-air machine seem insuperable. Will he, for instance, find anyone with the skill and foresight to invent an aerodrome? Listen to the gripping tale of the battle between man and the elements. We feel sure you will be on the side of the elements every time. So, so I'm not sure who wrote that. Not sure who wrote that, but it was no. um, it was a little uh, uh, little sort of uh, synopsis printed in the transcription services variety catalog. Um, so, what is it? You know, when you think of this show, what immediately do you think of? Is it the the, the situations, the lines, the characters? What in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, I mean, first of all, I'd. Um... There's the fact that it's it's got this sort of um, there's this sort of military uh, aspect to it all, which is something that I obviously always associate with uh, with Milligan, um, and I guess it's like something that you often get. I guess in the Goon Show is um, you you get sort of ridiculous institutions, um, and that's sort of very much it. It's sort of like you you get this uh, sense of a, a large number of men who have got together to. Uh, to solve a problem in in the most convoluted way possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, that they, um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's, I'd, I'd be interested to know what the inspiration behind this is. I don't know if you can enlighten me at all on that, but it's um, because it's obviously not the invention of the aeroplane as we know it. I don't know if there is any basis in, in anything that happened in history that someone, whether it's based on someone's failed attempt to invent the aeroplane, but it does appear to be that Milligan has just, um, wholesale made this up and has just arbitrarily decided that it's going to be set in a certain era. It doesn't sort of really matter that it's set in, in that era. It's not historically important, really. Um, but he just sort of, it, I, I rather like the fact that it's just, it's just wholesale invented, as far as I can tell. Well, yeah, it's bookended by, so it, it, the, the plot, what there is of the plot is that this fictional Fort Spawn is under mm. siege. Yeah, and the garrison's out of supplies, so they they need so they need someone to invent the aeroplane. Yeah, in order to fly them in supplies, um, but obviously you know it's 1902 and it's a year before the aeroplane. Yes, aeroplanes um, are invented. Yeah, um, uh, I like the fact that everyone knows that aeroplanes are going to be invented. And yeah, annoyed that no one has. <laughs> so, I, I like it. <laughs> but it's a kind of like ludicrous a historic a historic a historicality. That. Maybe may a word and may not be. Um, <laughs> uh, is is what really appealed to me about it. It's uh, yeah, it, it uh, the fact that um, you know, <laughs> I love the fact that uh, they, the moment they've invented the aeroplane, grip pipe phones up and like the air ministry has just been waiting for someone to invent the aeroplane, so they've got something to do. It's right. Well, that's right. It's been down to be in, invented in 1903. 
<laughs> in yeah. fact, I did. I didn't check because it's obviously the Wright brothers. I didn't check. Was it 1903? Did you? I check, have check? no idea. No, I, 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 uh, yeah, like uh, presumably like Milligan himself, I didn't bother to check. <laughs> yeah, that's that's well, that's it. So, so, so the plot that's set up is obviously that there's this there's this military fort which needs supplies. They need someone to fly in supplies, yeah. and and then we have 27, 28 minutes of stuff that more or less isn't related at all no. to that. <laughs> and then I mean, and and then a line at the end say we did it we dropped the supplies and everyone's happy <laughs> the end <laughs> they just they just narrate like the actual resolution of the plot in about 10 seconds yes <laughs> yes um but it does i think what's interesting about that is that it does uh, i it's it's a weird sort of writing process that uh, milligan and whoever he was working with must have had to go with through with with these because um uh, because i mean he was writing these incredibly quickly it's um you know having having had myself 18 months at one point to write six episodes of the series it's the the idea of even if you have other writers in to help you out the idea of writing 26 episodes a year mm. um is kind of terrifying and no wonder he had several nervous breakdowns along the way um He's also set himself this kind of odd challenge. Uh, and I, this is what I find kind of fascinating about The Goon Show, that we just accept this is what The Goon Show is and this is how it works, is that um, it's got a fixed cast of characters, but no fixed setting or right. even a fixed, like even, even fixed roles for those characters within each episode. Um, and I guess it kind of evolves out of it because obviously I haven't heard the early ones because they don't exist, but I think it must sort of evolve out of it being originally this kind of sketch show that evolves into having whole plots. It's, 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 it, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the format of the early episodes would be that they'd have, yeah, like sort of sketches, sketches. Mm. And within sketch shows, I mean, I can't think of a precise example at the moment, but we've definitely seen that in sketch shows where you establish a character. And then they kind of they might pop up to do their role that you're familiar that you're familiar with them doing in an unusual setting, like it might be a historical setting or just a different a place you wouldn't expect them to pop yeah. up. You do get these characters who, yeah. you know, they're the same character but they're taking a different role. And I, I I think this must be how the Goon Show ended up evolving was that um, you've got that mindset of like okay they're kind of they're almost they're kind of their personalities rather than characters and sort of personalities and voices. Um, and then you kind of fit them into other parts. And like this is a really good example of that because, because Ned Seagoon is in this, um, this kind of uh, strolling inventor character, which is just what works for the story. But in various other episodes, you know, there's the one, you know, it's the one where he's the prime minister. There's, you know, in, in quite a lot of them, he's this kind of, um, he, he reminds me a bit in some of, of Laurel and Hardy characters, he's kind of drifting vagrants who get into scrapes. <laughs> You know, that's kind of what he's like in Napoleon's piano. He's just kind of wandering about, a sort of man of no fixed address who um, who just is looking for odd jobs. Yeah, usually, usually he's the putz. He's the mm. rube. Yeah. He's he's the patsy. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, like last week's episode that we covered uh, was Tales of Montmartre, which was set in 1880 in France, yeah. <laughs> where, he's, where he's playing Toulouse the Trek. Yeah. Um, he's with, you know, it's been set in ancient uh, Roman Britain in yeah. the, uh, histories of Pliny uh, the Elder. Pliny the Elder, yeah. Um, it's been, um, uh, the th or, or even like established stories like the, like the Robin Hood one, you know, you just sort of yes. fit them to an existing story. Yes. 
that's it exactly so and it's it's incredibly that must be incredibly freeing yeah for, well for it's sort of this is it. It's sort of freeing in a way, but also it's sort of you've got the blank sheet every time. It does. It is helpful in some ways because um, quite often what you need, you, what you need to get a story going, is you need those characters where you kind of say, okay, I'm going to put this character in this situation, and then if you know the character well enough, if they're a strong character, then you can work out what they would do. And uh, he definitely has that in the Goon Show, Milligan. He has. Um, we we know what characters are going to do, and in fact, a lot of the fun comes from the fact that. You know, even even as they appear, like when you know when when Blue Bottle appears in something, you kind of you think, oh, I know where this is going. Uh, you kind of, it's yeah. part of the pleasure of it is that um, even if the characters have never encountered Blue Bottle before, we have, and we're anticipating a Blue Bottle type reaction. Yes. Um, but it's also uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting listening to this one is that you've kind of got. Um, also, almost an obligation to to find where you're going to fit the characters in because they don't have natural places at the start of the episode because because you're kind of starting from scratch every time. Your characters don't have natural places, so you kind of think, well, uh, this character isn't necessarily doing their normal thing. They could be doing anything, but I do wonder whether Milligan would sort of whether he he was always sort of plotting and thinking, okay, and now I want to bring in this character, or if he kind of worked out the story he wanted to tell. And then it's like, okay. And then he sort of casts it with his existing mm. cast. I mean, I think mm. an example in this one is that Blue Bottle actually isn't in it very much. No. But uh, I wonder if Milligan sort of like, if you would be, you would feel shortchanged if you didn't get some Blue Bottle in an episode. So Milligan finds somewhere to put it. And it's a brilliant scene, the one where they phone, it's the wrong number and they phone Blue Bottle by mistake. <laughs> He's at home in bed, <laughs> which, um, which, uh, which, is, uh, which is actually a recycled gag from the first series oh is actually. it Wrong. yeah with um right. and the the in the in the 1951 episode it was an exchange between osric pureheart played played by benteen yeah and uh i didn't make a note actually a another character um but exactly the same setup but one thing that i think is quite interesting in wings over dagenham uh is that you don't you don't often get these uh completely new characters at this point in the show coming in, but they do, obviously, um, uh, Milligan has decided, uh, or, or Stephen has decided, that we need a foil for Seagoon um, as the inventor hmm. uh, to talk to at the start. And um, and none of the other characters will quite do. I mean, that could have been Eccles, maybe? It, it... Yeah, I wrote this down in my notes. And, and this is because obviously, because we have the, the person you were referring to is Mick Chisholm. Mick Chisholm. He's played yes. by the wonderful George Chisholm, who was in the, the band in uh, yes. Molly Starts Orchestra on the trom- trombone. Oh, I was, see, I was actually wondering this because I was thinking this doesn't sound like anyone else. And it's, yeah, and I was, I was actually wondering who it was because I don't think, um, I don't think it's mentioned at the end either. Is it? Uh, I think it is. Yeah, no, he Maybe was a, oh, right. very, very well known and celebrated. Um, jazz trombonist right and he'd um he'd been he'd been involved in he'd been in the orchestra of many hmm. um bbc radio shows like bandwagon it Ma, much binding in the marsh yeah um and obviously he was part of as i say he was part of wally starts orchestra for the goon show and he became very friendly with the guys and um he in total i think he appeared hang on one two he was in he's appeared he's 
had little appearances, and it, maybe it might just be a line mm. in six goon shows. So okay, but it's yeah, it's a substantial role here, though. It's like uh, yeah, and he does he does get to um, he is sort of being a bit of a straight man for the others, but he does get to do some funny stuff in it. No, my masterpiece, this apparatus. Oh, if it's not a rude question, sir, what's it supposed to be? I wish I knew. I'd feel much happier. You said it was to be a mangle. Yes, I know, but I added a bit here and a bit there, and it got completely out of hand. I'll, I'll tell you what, Mon. You get in the seat, and I'll swing the propeller. Mad impulsive boy. Mm. But as you wish. Contact! Good, you've invented the method for starting an aeroplane. Contact! Should we build now? <laughs> Mr. Seagun, did, did you not notice? A moment before it fell to bits, it rose seven feet off the ground. Correction, five feet. Two of those feet were mine. <laughs> well, I think, I th yeah, because I've written down here, why, why Chisholm, as in why include him? It could yeah. have been another character. Like you say, it could have been Eccles. But then if it was Eccles, they'd have need, they would have needed to have been a lot more yeah, boffo gags, if you like, and funny lines yeah. for him to deliver. Whereas Mick Chisholm is just basic, like you say, he's just reacting to Seagoon mainly, it, isn't he? It's true. It does. I mean, maybe that's it. I mean, it does. It does enable them to um, get things moving quite quickly in this. That uh, that that seems fairly straightforward, which is kind of part of the fun of it. The, the speed with which they invent the aeroplane and then and then <laughs> again. Yes. And yeah, you're right. You would have. I think if it had been if if he'd been there with Eccles, actually, it'd come to think of it. Eccles doesn't tend, to, doesn't tend to be a character you bring in right at the beginning. Uh, my this is this is purely mm. based on my kind of my general memory. I, I haven't done a survey to check, but my memory of these things is usually that Eccles kind of comes in a few minutes into the episode rather than the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's 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 never there's no set hard and fast rules, but no. But I would say in the structure of a typical goon show. You've got the three acts, haven't you? You've got yeah. you've got the first act, then you've got Galdray, second act, yeah. then Allington, then the, the final act. So in the first act, you'll have Nettie and you'll typically have Grip Pipe and Moriarty turning up. Yes. And then in the second act, you'll very often have Minnie and Henry. Yeah. Um, and in the third act, you'll often, that's the point, you'll have Eccles and Blue Bottle. Yeah. Um, may, maybe more sort of, I'm talking series five, series six, even series seven shows mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 those shows that what that will tend to be the where they will appear so yeah Eccles will tend to be in the sort of latter yeah. ha latter half of the show yeah yeah and also I think Eccles and Blue Bottle are characters who get a laugh as soon as they turn up and I can kind of see why it's quite good to um as a writer you kind of think you know just when you're about halfway through and you maybe just need to bump the audience up yeah. a bit it's kind of it's quite good to be able to wheel those characters on absolutely yeah 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 yeah, say say because Blue Bottle is well, Eccles and Blue Bottle, I guess. Yeah. Certainly, then, I guess even today are considered the, you know the the fan favourites, aren't they? They are, yeah, and they're the ones you know they're the ones who who uh, you know most most people who 
uh, who've heard the Goon Show could do uh, at least a recognisable impression of those two characters. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, maybe not a good one. I, I hesitate to say good, but right, you could you could tell who they were doing. It's uh... in every show, certainly at, in this at this period, there would be a recurring motif or a recurring line that would almost be almost like a um, a catchphrase for one episode only if you know what I mean. Yes. And in this yes. particular show, it is the phrase, a mental picture of dot, yeah. dot, dot. Yes. And actually this is the thing. I think that's the, uh, that's the one, the main thing I was thinking of when I, um, when I said, oh, there are things, I realized there were things in this episode that I still say today. And I think that's the one, that's, that's the, uh, the, the running gag that I think of as being a very goons gag. And I do kind of, it, it, I, I kind of feel like it's, it's something that appeared more, but it is, as you say, it is pretty much, it's a running gag for this episode. I mean, it's very in keeping with the Goon Show. I mean, like I say, because you've got this whole thing that um, the characters are taking a new role every time, but you also sometimes get these winks that they treat each other like they do know each other previously, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, and which you kind of accept as the audience because we've all seen them lots of times. Um, but it's also kind of acknowledging you know, it, they're constantly acknowledging the the uh, the artificiality of it and the co- and the construct of it, and they do that as well in this episode with um, Seacombe's playing the uh, the Welsh uh, site manager uh, at the building, mm. and uh, and when Eccles does that disaster, and then and then there's the uh, recording of Seacombe that just goes faster and faster and faster. Uh, which eventually is broken when Seacom comes back in as Seagoon this time says, well, stop talking to that record of me, Eccles. And, and, <laughs> and I think the, the mental picture thing is is kind of, um, it, it it's kind of of a piece with things like that, that, you know, this is radio and, and you know, that's what the sound effects are there for. And it's quite funny to, it does, it develops this odd comedy of constantly drawing attention to these scene setting sound effects that are just a common thing in radio by saying what they're meant to give you a mental picture of. And they become increasingly odd as well. Like the early, the first couple of times they use that, it it kind of, it is what it says it is. And then you do get these um, increasing, these ones where it's like, it's, uh, does that, what that, oh yeah, it's after Geldrake's bit, isn't it? Uh, that was to give you a mental picture for, uh, no, to give listeners in the Lake District a mental picture of Max Geldrake playing a nude harmonica. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and actually just that, at that point, Milligan, you can hear Milligan off mic saying something along the lines of, that's so much more than we got. Meaning, yeah. <laughs> meaning the applause. Yes. And, and then when Greenslade delivers that line, uh, Milligan just just blurts out, he's fallen fallen in the water. Yes, yeah, right. yeah, just because of a mention of water, yeah. yeah right. Now, here, here's here's the thing. Okay, Milligan says that, and then you hear Harry kind of sniggering or yeah. giggling. That's obviously Little Jim, the character yes. Little Jim. Now, Little Jim didn't exist in the world of Wings over Dagenham. He uh... wasn't formally introduced until the following show, The Rent Collectors. That was his debut, The Rent Collectors. Oh, right. So uh, so this is what you meant by, yeah, so things that are picked up in the next episode. Yeah, so exactly. So the lads have record, have rehearsed both shows, presumably, you know, Sunday morning, mm. Sunday afternoon. So they knew, Seekin knew what was coming, that Little Jim, this character Little Jim, was going to be introduced in The Rent Collectors. But Milligan's just kind of decided to... Um, Give a little preview in Wings Over Dagenham. That music was designed to give listeners in the Lake District a mental picture of Max Geldray playing a nude mouth organ. He fell in the water. Now, and now... The, the, char- the name Little Jim actually does get referenced in 
an earlier show called The House of Teeth. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's the rent collectors that he's officially introduced. Mm. Well, it's Jim is one of those names that Milligan uses constantly. It's just one of those. It, I think he just sort of likes the the sound of it. Yes, and it sort of pops up constantly. It's like the fact that we 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 were told several times that uh, Moriarty's first name is Jim, which yes. doesn't really make any sense, but it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, totally. Um, Seagoon and McChisholm, they have this workshop yeah. where, they're, where they're tinkering and they, they, they accidentally build this aeroplane. But the workshop is, um, they specifically identify the location of the workshop as being on Lyle Street. Mm. Do, you, do you know anything about Lyle Street? I don't know anything about Lyle Street now, but there's a, I did wonder about this because, and this is a funny thing, was that like, because being so intensely familiar with the taped version, yeah. I had. I did really spot when I um, yeah, when listening to the version that's now running on that's now available on BBC Sounds. Um, I could immediately tell that that had had a few cut bits put into it. Yeah, that's that right. We're not there in the tape, that's and right. you can tell actually you can tell if you're on if you're on headphones because the quality goes a little bit. You can hear a bit of background noise. Yes, off, off a lower quality recording, and there is a reference. One of those that had been cut was a reference to Lyle Street. That if you was it if you if you if you can't get up in Lyle Street, then well, is it then there's oh something like well, see, Seagoon, Seagoon comes in now on the on the on the the version that you'll have grown up with on the on the tape on the cassette. Yeah. <clears throat> Seagoon's invented the airplane, but he it can't he can't take off from Lyle Street because every time he tries to, the lights turn red. Okay, yeah. that's his excuse. And in the in the cut bit that's then that we've heard since reinstated. Mm. Um, Grip Pipe says, well, if you can't get off in Lyle Street, you'll never get off anywhere. Right, that's now, it, yes. yeah. Now, Lyle Street was a very infamous and famous red light district in that Soho. That was what I thought it yeah. must be, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, yeah, because obviously this is, I should just explain for anyone who doesn't know that, yeah, this is uh, the, the versions that were slightly edited for overseas i believe and yep. to repeat would be the ones that survived but they would cut topical references and uk specific references and sometimes anything that they thought was a bit too saucy that line if you can't get off in lyle street you've never got off anywhere for 1957 <laughs> that's quite well it's like risque. i mean i mean he is sort of obviously he's riffing off like the previous line but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. barely but it's barely a double entendre it is kind of a single entendre really <laughs> it's it's there's not um yeah it's not it's not it's not even really innuendo that much it's just he was just saying it <laughs> yeah and, and for some reason just before that line Seagoon refers to grit pipe as gritters he says gritters <laughs> but don't know why no <laughs> yeah so we we have this this aeroplane they but in order to get the airplane off the ground they need uh, an aerodrome in order for mm. it to take off from. And we have this hilarious sequence with Henry Crun, which I've, I've always been extremely fond of. Um, and Henry's mm. going to build Croydon, <laughs> Croydon Airport, which I think is now Gatwick, isn't it? Is, is that what? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gatwick is in, in Croydon, yeah. And what I love about, because we've got, Mi we've got Mini, Mini and, well, we've got Henry and then we've got Mini briefly. Yes, we've got and a bit of Mini in the background. Whenever you've got Mini and Henry, almost always they're together. Yeah. in some scene and often just going off on tangents and um, mm. misunderstanding each other and fighting and all the rest of it. Um, but you do get quite a number of shows where, where Minnie will be at, 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 at a public meeting heckling yes. or, a, or a committee hearing. 
yeah. heckling. Hey, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, as she what is about here. The and and that that's sort it. Of thing. Yeah. That's it. Uh, you mentioned about the um, the Welsh uh, Harry doing the Welsh yeah. uh, construction site guy. Yeah. And and th- there's that sped up dialogue. Do you do do you know what that dialogue? I've got the dialogue written out. If you want to hear what he actually <laughs> yeah, says, I would I would love to hear what he actually says. So yeah. and I wish I could say this in a I don't know George Sanders voice, but he says um he says you dull stupid half witted useless jumped up never come down idle dull headed twinnick. If I get my hands on you, I'll beat all the sawdust out of that thick nut of yours. You'll be spawned and herned within an inch of your life. Your head is the size of a number two grapefruit, not to mention good night, Gladys Young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just wanted to interrupt the conversation just very briefly to talk about Peter Sellers, Hollywood and home movies, which is uh, a unique online event as part of Jewish Book Week, London's International Literary Festival. They're, they're holding a, a virtual event via Zoom on the 5th of July at 7pm, hosted by film critic Jason Solomons and featuring guests uh, Ronnie Ancona, director Peter Lydon and Sarah Sellers. And they will be talking about Peter Sellers and uh, his life and his work um, and home movies. Um, Peter Lydon is a previous guest on this show. Uh, Peter is the, was the director of the, the epic three-part Peter Sellers story from 1995, which we covered on this podcast, um, oh, I suppose, what was it, back in August, September sometime last year? And in 2002, uh, there was um, a, a, a distillation of the Peter Sellers story, uh, uh, and it was a, a documentary called Peter Sellers As He Filmed It, which was essentially um, just pretty much all home movie footage, or footage that Sellers had shot throughout his his adult life, uh, and Peter was uh, responsible for putting all that together. So, uh, as I say, it's a conversation with with Peter, with Ronnie Ancona, with Sarah Sellers, and hosted by Jason Solomon's. It's free. Um, in order to uh, get tickets, book tickets, go to uh, JewishBookWeek.com and click on events, and you'll see uh, it there. Peter Sellers, Hollywood and Home Movies. Uh, if you get uh, if you get a ticket, you will have access to the uh, documentary Peter Sellers as he filmed it as well. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be a very interesting and enlightening conversation, and uh, the sort of thing that listeners to this show, I'm sure, would be very very keen to uh, to join and uh, to partake of. So, uh, as I say, please check out JewishBookWeek.com to uh, book yourself tickets for the 5th of July, and that's kicking off at 7pm. Now back to the show. The, you, you said about McChisholm being a, a new character. Mm-hmm. Now there's also, a, a, there's another, in this particular episode, there is a, a prominent character who we don't hear from very often. It's a character, it's a, it's a, it's a voice that isn't, you know, it's not one of the big seven or eight Goon yeah. Show characters. In fact, it's not really second division goon show character it's more it's more one of the the uh the more obscure voices that sellers would occasionally employ mm. um which is a character called sydney mincing okay okay now do you now this is the guy who's who turns up in wings over dagenham as the geographical society representative oh yes yes yeah no now i know who you mean yeah um, it's, it's weird it's, it's a voice that i remember but it's a bit like um I don't know the way he comes in. It sort of reminds me a bit of uh, of Kenneth Williams in in Hancock. That it's sort of 
uh, where he might be doing different things, but it's sort of a voice and an attitude more than a character, you know. Exactly. Well, it's funny enough. It was because you know Sellers, the, the before he, I think the what two years before the Goon Show, um, he was in Razor Laugh. In fact, he was in Razor Laugh up until was it fifty four? I think mm. um, he was the voice man on Razor Laugh, and that yeah. was the Ted Ray show, and Kenneth Connor more or less took over when Sellers departed as the voice man on Razor Laugh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a, there was a character on Razor Laugh played by Kenneth Connor, which, which had this kind of voice. So I think Peter Sellers more or less filched <laughs> that voice mm-hmm. um, and adopted that voice in very often in, around this time, sort of series seven, sort of 1956, 57. Mm-hmm. And it would be for um, minor officials, or yeah. petty officialdom, you know. Um, the inter- By the way, Kenneth Connor um, guest starred in a, a goon show from the was it ninth series um, called "Who Is Pink Oboe." Yes, that was the, that was the one show that Sellers was absent from. Mm. So you had Kenneth Connor, you had Valentine Dial, you had Graham Stark, and Jack Train, mm. and Connor actually himself plays that Sydney or does that Sydney mincing voice. Good morning. May I say go? These are the code names, you know. I don't feel strange in this programme at all. <laughs> yeah, so we have this this guy, this geographical society representative. He wants to he wants to be on the aeroplane on its maiden flight mm-hmm. because he wants to photograph the earth from a great height. He wants to prove once and for all that the earth is flat. Now, the, there is a mystery surrounding the, um, the nomenclature, I suppose, because yeah. in the original script, the actual script that they used on the night of recording, and I've, I've seen these scripts, the character is actually down as Malfeasance. That, yeah. is, that is the name on the script for this character. Yeah. As M-A-L-F-E-A-S-A-N-C-E, Malfeasance. Um, so we don't know why he was called Malfeasance, but he's he's become known mm. subsequently as Sidney Mincing. Um, it's it 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 basically culminates in that great sort of crowd pleasing line where um, Eccles says, uh, "I've seen the Earth through the cloud," and <laughs> Sidney says, "Did it look round? Yeah, but I don't think it saw me." <laughs> <laughs> One that always really appealed to me uh, when I was a kid was the um, the line about the petrol-driven violin. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the, the, this is what I was leading to because that is my favourite line. It, it, it's it's yeah. a throwaway line and it doesn't really get a reaction. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, but that's just it's. Um, I don't, I don't, it, I don't it, even it, know whether that was a thing that I was aware of. But it's like it was that. Um, there was that sort of dramatic trope wasn't there or maybe a comedy trope that of, of saying you know i'll i'll never do something again yes you know? and it would usually refer to the fact that like you know you wouldn't play the violin again because you your hands would have you know one of your arms would have fallen off with gangrene <laughs> yeah. or something like yeah. that but it's like but just the ridiculous line of it being a petrol driven violin <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's one of those throwaway lines that i love and and i've and i've tried to, in fact on the first uh, episode of this podcast the, was we we covered the show the goon show the man who never was from series mm. eight and 
there's a great example of a type of goon show gag that I love and I, and I can't really describe it, but it's where like, the, the, there's a line where um, there's in the, the man who never was where blood has got some microfilm mm. that he needs to, st- needs to study. And he says, I'll, um, I'll just put this microfilm under this heavy microscope for a moment. It, it keeps it flat when I put my glasses on. which doesn't get a laugh it just kind of gets a a mild titter from the audience i think that's fantastic yeah and i and i think the same as of this this it's a petrol driven violin do you hear yeah i think (laughs) that's definitely that's one of those jokes that really emerges in the writing i think where (laughs) um you know where you, you kind of write yourself into that situation and then you're like okay what do they say next and then you know you just go for it's well in some ways it's the most straightforward one and in some ways option that you could have but it also it's also the most ridiculous at the same time which is what i love about it it's like it it's it's actually not complicated and yet it's completely stupid (laughs) (laughs) hello there don't lend i can't lend why not i haven't got enough petrol gus Boiled by the shortage at six and a penny a gallon. I tell you, you must get liquid petrol up to me or I'll never play the violin again. Why not? It's a petrol-driven violin, do you hear? It's around that time that uh, Moriarty goes off on an owl, doesn't he? Yes, um, you've got to go owl. And the, yeah, they've got the morning chorus doing. That's just, that's just before the Railington break, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ray says, "Stop plugging your record, Moriarty." While I plug <laughs> yeah. one of mine. So this is this. Uh, this was recorded late December '56, yes. and in December, early December '56, um, "You Got to Go Owl" was released on record. Yeah, it was um, Spike with um, Larry Larry Stevens on piano, mm-hmm. and the Mast Alberts. Um, so that's the guys that uh, worked with uh, Sellers and Milligan on a show called Fred and some yeah. Fred and also Bruce Lacey um and it was produced by George Martin no less yes yeah uh as, as as so many of them were yeah yeah and at some point hopefully this year I'm going to be doing a show about um going to, probably going to be called produced by George Martin which will be about um <laughs> the Sellers yeah. and Milligan oeuvre yeah uh, um speaking as you were of, of George Martin I do think it's um I mean, it's true of all goon shows, really. I don't think it's anything particularly tied to this one that I can think of that that has uh, that I can think of that sort of picked up in in Beatles stuff. But it's I I do really feel I've said this before that I feel like you can't I, I generally feel you can't understand the Beatles completely if you've not heard the Goon Show. I certainly think you can't understand John Lennon completely if no. you haven't heard the Goon Show. Yeah. I think it is very it's it, you can really see it in the psyche. In fact, I, I was thinking. When I was watching uh, the Get Back documentary, mm. um, so much of of um, of John and Paul in particular, their their relationship, they just they do silly voices at each other constantly, and I think that's very much something that has kind of come from their, their love of the Goon Show is that they just they 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 adopt these characters these constantly in these sort of it. You know, you'll get these edges of like of Henry and Minnie sometimes, or Blue Bottle Eccles. That's just kind of how they communicate. Is yeah. just by putting on these silly voices and like creating these sort of spontaneous little double acts. I think that's very much it was. It came out of this radio comedy world, and particularly the Goon Show, where um, where you would just yeah, you just hear grown grown adults doing silly voices in your house constantly. <laughs> well, you look at you only have to listen to B side of let it be you know yeah. my name look up the number 
Yeah, yeah, and I think that's it's that's sort of that I, I definitely found that with like that's very much John and Paul's thing. That was just sort of how they communicated. They're quite different personalities in some ways, but they just they both just love doing silly voices, and <laughs> they they had a, they did have a, a very uh, similar sense of humor. Yeah, but you know, also just um, you know, just the way that I mean, the, the things like the speeded up record that we were talking about of uh, of um, Seacom, I think it does create that uh, awareness. In, in a whole generation of people, the, the idea that you can manipulate sound, which I think is huge, and just simple little things like that, because Milligan has this fascination with, well, we can do this with the sound. I mean, Milligan always loves to just speed up a sound mm. uh, and, and just get the comedy value out of that. You know, it's quite often it's a cheap laugh, but it, <laughs> it, it works. People just love to hear a speeded up noise. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that, uh, that little things like that, those kind of bits where you just, the delight in, changing a sound and and the possibilities of doing that when you're not doing it live but you're doing it recorded um i mean obviously they were doing it live in front of an audience but the fact that you can add in these recorded noises or treated noises um i think is uh just that just worms its way into a huge into a whole generation of musicians well he thought it was all as christmas as it had come at once when the radiophonic workshop set up yeah yeah it's um it, it, I guess it, it coincides very nicely with um, with the the possibilities uh, that that Milligan was looking for. The fact that it happened around the same time. It's um, you know just the idea that you can do something that isn't just like I mean I guess I guess what it comes down to is it's some, because you know the 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 audience at home can't see exactly what you're doing and it kind of hides the joins between these things and it becomes something that is a bit more than just something that you could go and see in a theatre it it kind of uh, it creates its own thing the fact that it's going out on the radio and you're sort of mixing up the live sound with recorded sound and kind of you know making it seem reasonably seamless yeah yeah um i'm, I'm just looking through my notes here to see because i think we've covered quite a bit of ground here but yeah you, men you mentioned at the outset you were, you weren't sure if this, this was based on anything in particular i don't i don't think it was it was as far as i know it wasn't based on any film or book no. Or anything like that. Although the title, from what I can find out, the the title "Wings Over Dagenham" is apparently based on uh, a very popular play, which was then made into a film in 1954 mm. called "Seagulls Over Sorrento," right? <laughs> um, which was a British movie, but with Gene Kelly in it. Um, mm. And it is a war film, but it's got no, from looking at the plot, it doesn't seem to have any sort of bearing on this. Nothing no. to do with the aeroplanes being built or anything like that. So I think it was just a, you know, it was, uh, it, it sounds, wing, Wings Over Dagenham is obviously, uh, it's a ridiculous title. Mm. Um, it should be something grand and, and uh, mysterious and dramatic, like, I don't know, Wings Over Zanzibar or something yeah. like that, not Dagenham. Yeah, but, that was always, a, that's always a, a standby of the goons is, um, is sort of unglamorous suburban yes. London locations. Uh, they, they, they do always love to just drop one of those in for a bit of, uh, I don't know, a bit of bathos. <laughs> oh, you mentioned that actually. Yeah. Another favourite line of mine, and it's not particularly funny, Spike or Larry or one of them probably spent half an hour chewing on the end of the pencil. And in the end, they wrote down, a line for Crun. I've been driven here from Rygate to say this line. <laughs> What's that about? No. Uh, so is there, is there anything else about this particular show that you wanted to talk about before we start wrapping up? 
no, no, thanks. I mean, like, uh, I, I feel like it would be very much in the spirit of the episode to, to wrap up uh, ridiculously quickly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, I mean, yes. And, but actually, but that is, that is something that uh, I do think is kind of funny about this, is that it does, it really does have the feel of, um, and, you know, they, they get away with it because it's funny and it, the sort of the plot doesn't really matter, but uh, there is very much a sense of, of Milligan and Stevens like saying, have we got enough material yet? And when we have, it's like, right, stop. Yeah. <laughs> will that do? That will do. Yeah, yeah. that will do. But, um, but yeah, it is sort of, um, it's, it, it's sort of, it, it sort of is, it is quite sort of plot heavy in terms of everything does keep linking back into this thing that they have to do. Uh, but um, at the same time, it does sort of like have this miscellaneous collection of like, well, how many different spins can we get on this? What what could happen now? What could happen now? And then um, the actual ending of it doesn't even matter. Um, <laughs> they just, you know, they yeah. The, the, it, I guess I guess um, the the payoff of the whole thing is that they do actually manage to get something into the air. <laughs> yeah so, yeah so that's kind of uh, that's your audience satisfaction but it just doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't matter like everyone's yeah no one uh, yeah fort spawn um fort spawn is saved but um who even cares <laughs> no precisely precisely so excellent well eddie thank you so much for joining mm. me to talk about this show um yes no no thank you for having me on yeah uh so right so uh, drunk on all your strange new words so tell yes. me about that. Right. Well, this is a science fiction novel about uh, set <clears throat> a little into the future, sort of the, the other end of the 21st century, when Earth has made contact, well, uh, well, aliens have made contact with us. They communicate telepathically and only a handful of humans have the ability to do this. But mm. the, the downside is that even once you've learned it, it sort of messes with your brain chemistry and makes you feel drunk. It's about a young woman from Halifax who never expected to get out of Halifax. And then suddenly she's plucked, trained up, and she finds herself working in New York for the cultural attache of this alien species. Wow. And okay. it's going a bit, you know, it's, it's going a bit bumpy, but she's kind of getting on okay. And then her boss is murdered. Uh, and uh, there aren't an awful lot of suspects. And she's... The closest person to him so suspicion falls on her and she kind of has to solve the murder herself oh well wow. so it's a murder mystery mm. sci-fi dystopian thriller yes yes basically all <laughs> those things uh and i tried to put some jokes in you know it's like I, people say is it, it you know people who know me from my comedy work are like is it a comedy it's like, no but i tried to put some funny bits in there it, it's partly just um the stuff that influenced me when I was when I was younger, you know, I, I used to watch a lot of things where, you know, a lot of things that were black comedy, you know, <clears throat> you know, in the nineties I grew up watching Tarantino films and things like that. Mm -hmm. And there's loads of jokes in those, oh, particularly yeah. the early ones. There's loads mm -hmm. of jokes, and like you know, and they'll even at the most grim moment he'll put a joke in. I don't, I don't know. That always feels real to me, as well as the fact that I just like watching it because it's funny. I I just think yeah, you know, people do do absurd things in grim situations and say the wrong thing and it in many ways the potential for humor is is bigger in those because it's more inappropriate and uh and so much of humor depends on doing the inappropriate things in the situation you know i mean the episode we've been talking about the whole humor of it comes from the fact that there's a serious situation uh and everyone is is approaching it in a completely ridiculous way yeah, i mean would you say that um 
was Die Hard sort of the granddaddy of that in terms of serious life-threatening violent situations where there's a lot of comedy peppered throughout it. That's actually, I hadn't thought of that, but you might be right because, I mean, it's easy to forget now, but Willis was known mostly as a comedy guy. You know, he'd he'd sort of come from doing Nightingale, Nightingale. Nightingale. Nightingale, not Nightingale. With, with Robert Lindsay. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd love to have seen that. Sorry, Nightingale, Nightingale just went up on Britbox and I was telling everyone to watch yeah, it. It's, it's, on, great. My, it's yeah. on my mind. It's my favourite, probably my favourite sitcom ever. I, that was I'm it. Literally, yeah, I've pitched variants on it about oh, at least three or four times. I've, I've kind of gone to commissioning people and gone, oh, that's something where like people are in a building at night and weird things happen and they, you know, never fly. I mean, so like... That is an example of black comedy with, with black comedy. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and gee, people die in that. And yeah, no, and I know. I know. There's nobody uh, here, but us chickens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, without any spoilers, but yeah, the last episode does, does go to quite dark places yeah. uh, and it's still very funny. Uh, but yeah, no, what's, sorry, what's the Bruce Willis, uh, moonlighting. moonlighting moonlighting that's what mm. i'm thinking of uh so he'd come from that and then he'd like done some comedy films this is like that's his transition to being a film actor and it didn't really come off and then sort of die hard was really counterintuitive at the time but that was that was kind of what made it especially but actually that's what's missing from you know the more recent die hard films is that like he was this kind of like slightly goofy character and like and then you know he turned out to be very capable but he would he would be approaching it in this kind of funny, yeah, slightly desperate, just clinging on by his fingernails kind of yeah. way, which is always more appealing. You know, it's it's always it it does get a bit boring when you have action heroes who who just um, are sort of impassive and professional and just do everything. You know, it's more fun to have an Indiana Jones type who's scared of snakes. You know, yeah, you need they need to have fallibility. Yeah, um, you you don't want someone who's too efficient, do you? No, no. Mm. <laughs> well, so, well, listen. So, I mean, that's coming out as we say, um, end of June. So, um, yeah, w- wish you all the very best with 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 that, Eddie. Yeah, um, thank you. Anything else you're working on coming up? Oh, yeah. So, uh, the thing that's got on at the moment is I've got a uh, a podcast drama for kids uh, called Truth Diggers, which is a comedy, and that's like um, it's a true crime podcast, but it's not true. We made it up. That was kind of the concept. Is that oh, okay. you're making a true crime podcast? Uh, I can't take credit for the idea, actually. It was my producer's idea, but he said, do you fancy writing it? And I was like, yep, okay. Um, but he, his idea, which I enthusiastically agreed with, that it should be a bit like, um, do you know Neil Gaiman's book, Fortunately the Milk, uh, which is about this dad who uh, he's been out to get the milk uh, and then he, he claims he's gone on this wild adventure and he's obviously making it all up. Um, <laughs> right. No, but, I don't know uh, that. But, okay. but, you know, it's sort of like, but so the idea was that it would get this, this, podcast would get uh, it'd start off on quite a realistic footing that they're just investigating this guy who disappeared uh, and then it becomes increasingly outlandish so you know there's ghosts and vampires and pirates and aliens and it just um and all the but i but i what really appealed to me about that was that i just thought throughout the kids are trying to be very serious and professional and they're sort of like okay so the you know they'll interview people they'll sort of say all oh, right so you're a ghost from the 13th century you know what what what's your perspective on this um right and uh, yeah so that's running on fun kids radio at the moment and what's that uh, sorry what's that called again it is called truth diggers truth diggers okay yes yeah i mean the the, the, the true crime podcast is massive <clears throat> massive industry now um, uh, it's 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 mad i mean i was actually it was i was trying to find ones to listen to to go about it and like there's there's 
quite there's a lot which are uh, which will be just i mean it's sort of like the format of this which is uh, like but they're talking about a murder rather than an episode of the goon show yeah. um yeah. which i find a bit i find a bit kind of i don't know it's um uh, I don't know. I kind of like if I'm going to listen to two people chatting about something. I, I you know, I kind of want to be about something fun <laughs> rather than like them sort of going and then you know, oh well, you know, this was the mistake they made down <laughs> that dark alley, and I'm like, oh god. But did you really see? Good... Um, did you see? Have you seen that Steve Martin Martin Short show? That's... I haven't yet. No, no. People keep recommending that to me. What's it? Uh, only murders. Only murders in the building. In the building. Yeah. It's fantastic. That right. Yeah. No, I should definitely watch that. Yeah listen to say thank you once again and uh if ever you want to come on and talk about something else that's got some some vague goon related connection then you'd be very very welcome okay well thank you thanks again to eddie thank you for listening please consider joining the goon show preservation society if you are not already a member because it is a very worthwhile pursuit not least because um, you get, obviously, the satisfaction of knowing that you are a member of you know, such an august organization, but also you get uh, four, count them, four newsletters every year. Um, you get uh, to go on all sorts of events and uh, meetings and uh, dinners and um, booze ups and all the rest of it. Uh, as and when they occur. And also you get access to the mighty Encyclopedia Gunicus, which I have uh, recently availed myself of the latest version. And it is, it is like, it is, a, it, it is like the world's biggest rabbit hole that you can disappear down and resurface some weeks later, looking bewildered, uh, but fulfilled. It's, it's got everything. It's got scripts. It's got recordings. It's got photos. It's got, just tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of content um, and uh, any self-respecting or even not really self-respecting goons fan really really needs to be getting their mitts on the encyclopedia goonicus so um yeah and the, in order to do so you have to shell out coin of the realm and join the goon show preservation society but you know you don't have to sell a kidney to pay the subscription it's very reasonable um, check out um, Goon Show Preservation Society website uh, they're also on Twitter at the GSPS um, and all the information will be available to you there so um, yeah do that do it now um, in the meantime I will see you next week with another guest another show until then enjoy the beautiful weather while we have it see you soon bye you dull stupid half-witted useless jumped up never come down idle delighted twinic if I get my hands on you I'll beat all the soda that are left you will be spawned at home with an inch of your life your head is the size of another two grapefruit don't you 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 don